0: I'm Warren Berkeley with the Laurel Heights Church of Christ in McAllen, Texas, and our purpose is to direct our attention back into the book of Acts, in chapter 16 this time. The writer of Acts is Luke. It is his purpose to describe what happened in the spread of the gospel after Jesus was raised and had ascended back into heaven. The apostles of Christ were given special powers to reveal the gospel, and to prove the message they delivered came from God. In this video in chapter 16, there is what is commonly called the second missionary journey of Paul. It begins, actually, in the last part of chapter 15, and then is continued in Luke's account of this journey in chapter 16 and 17, and into chapter 18. I'll show you a map later, but first we're going to get into the text after our four fast facts. There is a problem that came up, we studied in chapter 15 Sunday, of Jews wanting Gentiles to adopt certain parts of the Old Covenant. The solution was to not impose on Gentiles any more than what was required of all, to cease all involvement in sin. For the next phase of travel, Paul and Barnabas separated. Paul will now travel with Silas, and that brings us now to the second missionary journey. Listen, please, verses 1 through 5. Acts chapter 16. Paul came also to Derby. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in number daily. Later in the New Testament, there are two epistles Paul addressed to the young evangelist Timothy. He is first mentioned here. Here is the first mention of this young man who was likely converted by listening to Paul during the first missionary journey and who became over time a close companion with Paul. On this second missionary journey, Paul comes back to Derby and Lystra, this time from the east rather than by sea. He connects with Timothy and Timothy now accompanies Paul, and we will see in a moment Luke was with them part of the time during the second journey. Now, we already know that Jewish circumcision as a religious ritual imposed on Gentiles became an issue, and we discovered that and studied about that and the conclusion drawn by the Holy Spirit and issued back in chapter 15. And we know from chapter 15, it was not essential, was not required that Gentile men follow that religious ordinance to be saved. In fact, it was not required that any man follow that religious ordinance to be saved. Here's something I said last time. It is not wrong for any man to make the choice to be circumcised or his parents, but it wasn't a requirement to become a Christian. The question here is, why then did Paul have Timothy circumcised? He didn't have Timothy circumcised as a condition of salvation. That's clear from what we already know. Paul just didn't want this issue to to become a distraction among the Jews, non-Christians who expected every man, even if part Greek, to be circumcised. So because of this sensitivity, at this early time, Paul had Timothy circumcised, so that this issue would not hinder or obstruct their work among the Jews. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Timothy was part Jew, part Greek, so as they went to Jewish people who were either not converted or new converts— Paul didn't want this to become an issue. The next part is Acts 16, 6 through 10, which is sometimes referred to, and it may be referred to this way in your Bible, as the Macedonian call. Acts 16, verses 6 through 10. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, Immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Paul and Silas continue with Timothy, following the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and arriving at Troas. And that's where this vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia, uh, standing there and saying, Come over to Macedonia. And help us, let's take just a moment here and visit a map briefly to view this Macedonian call. This takes Paul and Silas from Troas over into Macedonia, and this little arrow that you see there shows their direction of travel from Troas over into Macedonia. The vision and the words made it clear to them this travel over into Macedonia was God's will to preach the gospel in that region. We have next the conversion of Lydia, 11 through 15, and that may be so marked in your Bible. 11 through 15, Acts chapter 16. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothras and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We determined, I'm sorry, we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay and she prevailed upon us. That brings us down to verse 15, the conversion of Lydia. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and we're going to add somebody else in a moment, came to Philippi. Later in the New Testament, there is a letter to the church in Philippi. Here in chapter 16, we get to see how that church started. Women had formed a group to pray One was Lydia, who had a good heart. God used his word to open her heart, and she was baptized, and others in her household. This was the beginning of the church in Philippi. Acts 16, 16 through 24 is next. 16 through 24. And as we were going to the place of prayer, I'm going to stop here and tell you, what I will talk about later, that the collective pronoun is found in the text here. We, us, that means Luke, is with them. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Let me remind us that during the time of Christ, for a limited period, demons possessed people. I don't know any more about that than what the New Testament says But demons possessed people, and Jesus and his apostles had the power to drive those demons away. Think of a demon as a temporary agent of the devil to cause a disturbance, and then to demonstrate the power of Christ and his apostles to defeat their extraordinary power. And men would sometimes take one who was so possessed, and use that person like, uh, well, a circus sideshow, a carnival spectacle for profit. Well, uh, there was this girl who was so possessed, and unscrupulous men used her for profit. She followed Paul and uh, disturbed the work. So Paul commanded in the name of Jesus that the demon go away, and it came, it came out of her that very hour. We consider this to have been a good thing, but the men who were making the money from the girl did not consider it a good thing. They saw that their hope of gain was gone, and this leads to seizure, false accusations, imprisonment for Paul and Silas after being beaten with rods. Before we see what happened next, stop and think about this that I just Briefly mentioned earlier, Luke is with Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Acts 16.10, the use of the collective pronoun we and us, this continues until Paul and Silas are put in jail. Then later, Luke makes another appearance with them. Tracking that is not always easy, but following the pronouns will help us keep up with Luke's part in the narrative and in the journey. Then we come to Acts 16, 25 through 40. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, I'm at verse 37. Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city, so they went out of the prison and visited visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. We call this the conversion of the Philippian jailer. And there is high interest narrative for at least three reasons. One, It exhibits great and impressive composure on the part of Paul and Silas. After being beaten and thrown into prison, what would you be in the mood to do? These men maintain this composure, this attitude of faith, singing hymns to God. The narrative is loaded with drama, the earthquake, the attempted suicide, the release from prison. And the dialogue between Paul and the officials, all of that, very interesting. But the most important element of this narrative is this simple fact. A lost sinner was saved by Christ, and then other lost sinners were saved. That's the main thing here. There are circumstances and side stories and colorful drama and Uh, some political intrigue and debate. But we must not let all of that keep us from good, clear focus on one main thing. The man and his family are converted, and they're now part of the local church in Philippi. And here's the part that I'm emphasizing in uh, verses 30 to 33. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Doesn't stop there. Verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him. And what was their response? They wanted to be baptized. In the book of Acts, there are these cases of conversion where the Holy Spirit reveals precedent. The conditions of salvation are uniform. When the gospel of Christ was preached, the people who wanted to respond and become Christians were always told the same things to do. Hearing the gospel, believing in Christ, confessing that faith, they were told to repent and be baptized. Those conditions are always either directly given or implied somewhere in the text, in the narrative given by Luke. We're being informed in these cases, about the way God wants people to respond to the gospel. That's Acts chapter 16. Next, the takeaways. Takeaways. I do want to talk more about that composure faith produced in Paul and Silas. When we read about Peter in prison earlier, and now with Paul and Silas, I'm impressed by the composure faith enabled these suffering men to have. Think about how you would feel, how you would react in jail after being beaten, knowing you had committed no crime. You were there because of your expression of faith in Christ and wanting to help people in an eternally valuable way. I ask myself, If I were there in prison after being beaten, would I be mad? Would I be depressed? Would I yell at the guards and create a disturbance? Would I try to take my own life? Would I gripe and murmur and complain? Would I just quit the faith? Peter, Paul, and Silas, and others in the days of the early church exhibited a very impressive composure and calm that faith produced in them it causes me to examine the depth of my trust in God and that examination is good for me and good for you number two in verse 28 there is as far as I know the first account in the Bible of suicide prevention counseling that's what it's called today It may sound clever, but I'm not really trying to be clever here. Paul prevented a suicide, not with lengthy therapy or especially trained counseling. Paul said, don't do this. Paul said, don't do this. And what did that show? That Paul cared for the man who was holding him in prison. A worldly view of the situation would have been, as long as we get out of here, who cares what the guard does to himself? Paul and Silas did not adopt that worldly viewpoint. They were not selfish men, vengeful men. They cared about the man who was charged to keep them in prison. That certainly communicates something to us about this element of good Christian character. Christians love all men even our enemies, and we do whatever we can legitimately do to help people in trouble. And it may simply be words that show we care. Now, let's shift and talk about not our words showing we care, but the word of God showing that he cares. The word must be heard and responded to in order for there to be a conversion. Conversion out of sin to God through Jesus Christ cannot really happen until a sinner hears the word and responds. So verse 32 says, They spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer. He had to hear the gospel. You can't can't just slip into the kingdom or gradually get into the Lord's church There is a definitive time when you listen to the gospel, the word of God, and you respond directly and personally. In the Bible, conversion is connected to hearing the word and responding. Now, the question may come up and could be posed this way, what saved the jailer? When people read these conversion stories in the Bible, if there isn't good objective attention paid to the narrative, there can be confusion. People can get things all mixed up, especially if they're thinking in terms of some religious enterprise or some religious background that they're familiar with. What saved the jailer? Well, do it this way. It wasn't singing. It wasn't the earthquake. It wasn't the care of Paul. It wasn't falling down and trembling. It wasn't washing their stripes. What saved the jailer? His response to Jesus Christ. He heard, believed, and obeyed the gospel of Christ and was saved from sin. In that response, he was saved by the blood of Christ. Some will say, "Belief only, just one thing. Believe on the Lord Jesus, that's all. Verse 31 is sometimes quoted in the interest of a faith-only theology. The important question is, what did believing on the Lord Jesus involved? Well, it involved repentance, as evidenced by the man's different treatment toward Paul and Silas. Also, verse 33 says he was baptized. When we see the word faith or believe, it then becomes necessary to look back into the context and see what was involved. Believing in this context and in every conversion case involves repentance and baptism. Verse 40, they encourage them. There is a pattern here. After preaching and after people are baptized, The apostles didn't just bid them farewell. Okay, you're saved now. They didn't just leave them. They encouraged them. This wasn't Paul's last contact with the church in Philippi. Remember, he sent them an encouraging letter that we have the epistle to the Philippians. New Christians need encouragement. Old Christians need encouragement. The encouragers need encouragement we impart that courage through good words and influence with care and love accompanied by prayer, always based on our loyalty to God and his word. And of course, when Christians get together, they encourage one another as described in Hebrews ten twenty-five. Something else I want to talk to you about, give you something to think about. I was reading, uh, what was written by A.N. Triton. Paul seems to have been responsible, writes Triton, for the first recorded sit-in. I don't know that I would put it that way, but here's what he's talking about. Paul refused to move until the authorities came and apologized. He wanted to compel the authorities to recognize and to fulfill their God-appointed task. Uh, This may have been very important for the freedom of the church that he left behind. I read that and thought about it, and I think there is a point to be made. It is all right to ask authorities to come clean and acknowledge their wrongs. It is not right to take matters of vengeance into your hands or Ignore the authority of civil government. It is not right to adopt the tactics of violence, but in fact it is right to ask magistrates and authorities, government officials, to admit their wrong and be honorable. Without resentment or insults, it is all right to ask government authorities to right their wrongs. We, in our form of government, get to ask our leaders to admit they're wrong, and we can vote them out. Such actions can be taken by the righteous, also by the unrighteous. The incidence here, the incidence justifies Christians in making use of civil laws to protect themselves, but not to inflict punishment on their enemies. This observation was made by John Stott. He went on to say, It is wonderful that in such pain, with lacerated backs and aching limbs, Paul and Silas at about midnight were praying and singing hymns to God. Not groans, but songs came from their mouths. Instead of cursing men, they blessed God. No wonder the other prisoners were impressed. Composure. All the way through, Acts 16. One more thing household baptisms. Sometimes people get a little troubled about, about that, so let's address it. There are essentially two views which are virtually opposite. One is that the person who was dominant in the family would simply tell the others, You're going to be baptized. We believe the apostles would not have agreed to that, since baptism must be a personal and rational choice from the heart of the individual who's heard the gospel. The more reasonable and scriptural view is families were very close. They acted in unity. As the gospel was taught, they listened together. All who were of sufficient age made the choice to become Christians. This was how Good family culture worked in that age. It is the most natural and reasonable explanation of what is commonly called household baptisms. Here's a map we're going to refer to next time as we continue to look into Paul's second missionary journey into chapter 17 and chapter 18 And uh, that will be next time, January the 10th. Thank you for listening to our study of Acts chapter 16. Next time, we will be in chapter 17.